This morning, we are continuing on in our series um, that is just Jesus. We're just spending a series talking all about Jesus. This morning, we're thinking about the phrase, Jesus, I've sinned. But I love that we're in this series because it may sound obvious, but I love Jesus. I kind of hope you would expect me to say that. And I love Jesus because I think it was my mum who used to say this. She must have got it from somewhere else before I get accused of plagiarism. But Jesus carried a simple message for simple men. And I, I loved that saying. I thought, yeah, that's fine. That's me covered. I'm a simple kind of guy. If anybody knows me, what you see is what you get. I wear my heart on my sleeve. And if you want much more than what you see is what you get, then you probably need to wait 24 to 48 hours because I'm a slow processor. So Jesus' simple message for simple people suited me just fine. And that is true. There's a lot of truth in that statement. However, as simple as belief in Jesus is, there are some richer and deeper concepts that we find in the Bible and we find Jesus laying out. And to paraphrase Hebrews chapter five, we're told this, Christians, you're not meant to stay like an infant on breast milk. You're meant to keep learning and growing and you're meant to be weaned off onto solids. And that's kind of where we're heading this morning. We're going to be looking at Jesus I've sinned in the, in the context of Romans chapter 3. It's in some ways a bit of a heavy going passage, so we're going to dive in. But it's going to be a bit like chewing on a steak, I'm sure, at times. There'll be moments, you know when you get a steak and you're like, yes, and you get those bits and you're like, oh, it's a really chewy bit. <laughs> Catherine's face then. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's annoying. But equally, when you get those beautifully tender bits and you're like, wow. That is an amazing stake. I hope that we have some of those moments this morning, as well as the fact we might have some bits that we've got to chew on a little bit. Does that sound okay? Cool. If you fall off along the way, I will try to pick you back up. But if you've got a device, if you've got a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 3 for me. The words will appear on screen, but if you've got your own thing, try and read it on that. It's so much better. So Romans chapter 3, we're going to read from verses 21 through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have, fallen, uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to um, demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ Jesus. That is a big passage, and I'm just going to pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word. Thank you that it is rich. Thank you that, Jesus, your message was so simple and yet we can read this richness and we can devour it like we do 
a rich pudding or something like that. And it can feed us well and it can, it can make us think, wow, God, you are incredible. And Spirit, I pray that you would come this morning and help us. Help us see Jesus all the more truly for what he did for us, for the price he paid for us as we have sung about this morning. Lord God, help us glorify you and see you in your majesty and your righteousness all the more. Because Jesus, we love you. Amen. So where to start? Well, Jesus, I've sinned. Haven't we all? Hasn't everyone? It's a good question. It's a good thing to throw out there. And it's a good thought because this is what we've seen Paul kind of developing um, throughout the start of Romans. We've seen Paul writing into a situation where he's writing to the church in Rome. And there's, there's division, there's arguments going on between the Jews, the Jewish Romans, and the Gentiles, who are non-Jews. In the first few chapters, there's this argument and this division going on. And then we arrive here in chapter 3. And Paul, for want of a better phrase, jumps in some steamroller and just steamrollers over everything that's going on in verse 23 by saying this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ouch. This is a painfully and helpfully true and constant reminder of where we have come from. Before we believed in Jesus, Paul is reminding us that nothing we could do could help achieve our righteousness, our right standing before God and get us into that perfect relationship with God. Nothing. Coming to church? No. Reading your Bible more? No. Doing nice things? No. Not getting drunk? Not having sex before marriage? Not swearing? No. Those things are not achieving our righteousness. They're not achieving our right standing before God. We are all on a level playing field before we believe in Jesus Christ. So if all have sinned and are therefore not only separated, but actually really in opposition to God, then how can we achieve this righteousness, this right standing before God? Well, the passage tells us that it's through the righteousness of Christ. It's just Jesus. How do we get this? This righteousness that comes from God comes through faith to all who believe. There you go. That's me done. See you later. That's this morning's preach pretty much wrapped up. And as much as I joke, that is kind of the bare bones of it. But like I said, we need to keep digging down. This righteousness, what is it? Well, what I can't do is give you a really nice, I like to try and do this, I, try, I can't give you a nice Oxford Dictionary definition of what righteousness is this morning. Because, is anybody in here like doing DIY? Ah, oh, yes, one firm hand up over there, just one DIYer. When you do DIY, as my wife will tell you, when I tell her it's going to take a morning and a week later I'm still doing it, you normally go to do a job and it unveils another four or five jobs that you've got to do. So it is, and you've got to unpack each of those jobs to kind of work back to the point where you can do the original job you wanted to do. 
That's a bit like what we see here in the passage when it comes to righteousness. We're going to have to explore some other things that are in this passage in order to understand this righteousness, this rightness between, to get us right between us and God that we are freely given through faith. So this morning, we're going to piece some pieces of a jigsaw puzzle together to try and get back to the place of understanding what righteousness is. You still with me? Great. Puzzle piece number one, justification. It's mentioned here in the passage, and it's important. Don't switch off, because I've used a big word, because this is an identity thing. This is so important. In order to be made righteous, we need to be justified, and this involves a status change. So we're dealing with a legal term here. And the best way I can think of putting this is by thinking about the doctrine of adoption. I love this doctrine. It is close to my heart. And here in the UK, the process of adoption is that when a child is brought into an adoptive home, they continue to live actually under their birth surname for a while until the adoptive family applies to the court and then they change their surname. At this point, that child is given a new name. Their legal status changes and they are given a new birth certificate. They're given an adoption certificate that gives them a whole new name. There's a legal exchange that happens. And this is very much like justification. Because what doesn't change is that that child still has a history. They still have a character that hasn't changed. It's slowly changing as they've changed family and they probably look more and more like their adoptive family. But actually, there's been a legal exchange. And that's just like justification because we get closed in the righteousness of Jesus so that when God sees us, he doesn't see our mess-ups, our sins, our failures. Instead, he sees the righteousness of Jesus when he sees us. This is a miraculous change. It's a legal change which has happened. But why is it important, Andy? Why on earth are you banging on about justification? It's because it changes everything if your identity changes. I've heard numerous people use the phrase, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I don't disagree with that phrase. It is true. But what I want to say is the reason justification is important is because it changes that from being just, it's that, sorry, it puts that as just a true statement. It's not an identity statement. If you're here and you believe in Jesus, you're not a sinner who's saved by grace, I would suggest. You are. But your identity is this. You are a saint who has the probability or the likelihood that you are going to sin. You're a saint who has the potential to sin, if you're like me, every day. But the truth of the matter is, my identity is that I am now a saint. My identity is no longer in Adam and in my sinful nature, but it is now in Christ. Why? Because I've been justified. My name has been changed legally. So that's why it's important Justification changes your identity. You have now, because of Jesus, you have been justified. 
And now when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't see your mess ups. He sees the righteousness of Christ in you. That is the first piece of the puzzle this morning, justification. If you've fallen off the bandwagon, wake back up now. We're going to move on to jigsaw piece number two, and it's this. It's the idea of redemption that's mentioned in the passage. To help us grasp redemption, we're going to move away from a legal term, and we're going to move more into shopping. Think buying and selling, Gumtree, eBay, something like that, Boscombe Market maybe. We're now getting into this idea to try and get into the mindset of the Old Testament. Slaves were sold into slavery and they were owned by their master. In order to get free from slavery in the Old Testament, a payment needed to be made. Like I just said, we're thinking about payment terms now. Normally, and this would have been made by a family member, a kinsman, And it would have been paid in order to set the slave free. There would have been a great price paid to bring that person out of slavery and bring them into freedom. And do you remember this morning how I started talking about that level playing field? All have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. Well, we haven't just sinned. We were slaves to sin, to use some of the biblical language. So we were in slavery to sin. And in the Old Testament, if you lived, then life would have been a bit like this. On Monday, I've sinned. On Tuesday, I go to the temple. I go and make some sacrifices to make up for that sin. I find, I don't know, a spotless lamb or a decent pigeon outside as I'm going in, and I take it in, and it's sacrificed. There needs to be payment for my sin to get my relationship back on track with God. Wednesday, I've sinned again. Thursday, I'm back into the temple to offer my sacrifices. It's not exactly how it worked, but you kind of get the gist. These Old Testament sacrifices pleased God in their different forms, but they were only temporary. The law made it clear. In order to be properly set free, a sinless, spotless perfection was needed. Just Jesus. He became the sacrifice for us to set us free from our slavery to sin. As Isaiah 53 verse 5 foretold, he was pierced for our iniquities. He was pierced for our sins. This is what redemption is. Redemption is the sacrifice that was required And that Jesus is the sacrifice that was required. Because of his sinless, spotless, pure, perfect life, he took our place. Jesus, our redeemer, our family redeemer, our kinsman redeemer. Well, so what? He took our place. Well, this is just another example of how we cannot add to our salvation We cannot add to our rescue because it was Jesus who stepped into our place. There's nothing we can do to make any more better of that situation. We just cannot add to it. It's Jesus only and his sacrifice that redeems us. So we've been justified in a legal sense. 
If you believe in Jesus here, your name has changed. Your status has changed from being a sinner into a saint. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. He had to be killed. He had to take our place as a sacrifice to make us right once and for all with God. But there's another piece of the puzzle. Atonement. It's mentioned again in this passage. The sacrifice of atonement is put. So what is this? What's the doctrine of atonement all about? All about? Well, I would suggest that it's helpful to think of it in terms of what it paid for. What was redemption for? Let me ask you this. When was the last time you paid a large amount of money for something and you didn't want to know what it included? If you've bought a house or got involved with a mortgage, you know you get a pack about that thick. And I sat down and scrupulously went through absolutely everything to find out what is it? What is it I'm paying for? The largest sum of money I probably ever, well, I have ever paid for anything. What on earth am I paying for? When you buy insurance, you want to know what's included. I've never been on an all-inclusive holiday, but my suspicion is that if I went on one, I'd be asking what's included. Do I get to eat all day or just some hours of the day? In that restaurant or all the restaurants, are all my drinks included? Do you look after my children? Do I get a sun lounger by the pool? Is it actually all-inclusive? You want to know what's included. And I'd suggest it's the same when it comes to knowing about the claims of Christ and Christianity It's important that we know why. Why, Andy? Why are you banging on about these terms this morning? What has the doctrine of atonement got to do with me? Just Can't you just talk about just Jesus? Where is Jesus? It's knowing exactly what he died for. Because have you ever asked this? Did Jesus die for all of my sins? Or did he die for just some of them? Or check out this scenario. I believe in Jesus, but then I sin. I've sinned, I haven't yet asked for forgiveness, and then I die. What happens? Am I covered? Am I covered by what Jesus did? Because I sinned in the the middle period. It's really important stuff. So please come with me as we delve into the doctrine of atonement, this last piece of the puzzle. Right, we're going to get a little bit technical here. Verse 25, in the NIV, which was up this morning, it says this, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Some people might have been sat reading on the ESV, the English Standard Version um, of the Bible. And what this says, talking about Jesus, is this. Jesus, whom God put forward by a propitiation of his blood. Okay, we're going to get into some big words. Sacrifice of atonement and propitiation both come from the same Greek word, hilasterion. The NIV doesn't do the best job in translating that when it says the sacrifice of atonement. It describes what it is, but they haven't really helped the reader. They haven't helped us understand what it means. Instead, I would suggest the ESV does a far better job by using this word propitiation. 
So what on earth is propitiation all about? What is the doctrine of atonement all about? It has two parts. The first part is this. It comes from the word expiation. Ex meaning to take away. And it means that our sins have been removed from us. The first part of the doctrine of atonement. As far as the east is, sorry cameraman, from the west, that is how far God has removed our sins from us. This is an incredibly important part of the doctrine of atonement. Expiation. This is amazing. Jesus' death on the cross, just Jesus, removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Some translations stop there, but the reason I mention that word hilasterion is if you look back through the Old Testament and its use, so many scholars argue actually it doesn't stop there, but actually this word propitiation includes the dealing with of God's wrath. God, we don't like thinking of these terms often in church, but God was rightfully and justifiedly wrathful towards our sin. Sin is utterly detestable and it needs dealing with. The wrath of God needs satisfying. We sing that, don't we? The wrath of God was satisfied. And propitiation is referring to the fact that God, uh, Jesus, dealt with the wrath of God for our sins. Let me try and put it another way, as R.C. Sproul so helpfully says. Propitiation satisfies completely the demands of God's wrath and justice. That's what the cross is all about. Christ, as our substitute as our redemption, took upon himself the wrath that we deserved to pay the penalty that was due for our guilt and satisfy the demands of God's justice. This satisfaction of God's wrath is by the removal of our sins and by the pouring out of God's wrath onto Jesus. This doctrine is rich and it is absolutely incredible. Jesus took on the wrath of God so that we could be set free once and for all. It is incredibly important to know that. If you believe in Jesus Christ, not just have your sins been removed as far as east is from the west, but when you sin, you don't have to come back to God groveling in a kind of sheepish manner saying, God, I've sinned. We were helpfully reminded of that this morning um, when, when Alex came up here and spoke. Instead, what we do, this is why it's important to know this, is when we come back to God, when we have sinned, is we don't come arrogantly, but we come with confidence. If you're a Christian here, you can come back to God with confidence, knowing that because you believe in Jesus, you are forgiven. His wrath has been satisfied. So we come back and we repent and we say, God, I messed up again. I thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for what he did on the cross. I thank you that I know my sin has been removed from me as far as the east is from the west. 
I'm not scared that God isn't going to forgive me. God will forgive me and God has forgiven you because you are justified. You are redeemed and you have been atoned for and the wrath of God has been incompletely satisfied. We sing these things in songs all the time, but sometimes it's helpful to just sit and think about that. The wrath of God has been entirely satisfied through Jesus, just Jesus. I love all these things. And I've spoken about all these, but how do we receive them? Well, we receive his righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. We're told this in verse 22, but suddenly it feels like we've come full circle again because we were told that all fall short of the glory of God, all have sinned. But then I love this because in verse 23, sorry, in verse 24, we're told that all who have faith, all are justified freely by his grace. It's another level playing field for everyone who believes in Jesus. No one is too far gone. If you believe in Jesus, no sin is too much. Nothing is too far to be forgiven by Jesus Christ. It is amazing that we are now righteous, we're redeemed, we're justified and we are forgiven. And why don't you start coming back up And I just want to give a very quick caution as we think about how we receive this by faith and only by faith. We receive this by faith, but what we must be cautious of not doing is turning faith into a work. I'm going to let Tim Keller explain this, and I'm going to read from his book. We must not fall foul of the subtle mistake of thinking that our faith actually saves us. As though in the Old Testament... God wanted obedience um, to the law for salvation. And now he's changed the requirements and what he wants is faith. That's a misunderstanding of both the old, uh, of the law and faith. In both the Old and New Testaments, it is the work of Christ that merits salvation. In both, faith is how it's received and that is all. Faith is simply an attitude of coming to God with empty hands. You don't pay for your sins to be taken away by actions. We covered that earlier, didn't we? You don't come to church more, you don't read your Bible more to take away your sins. But neither do we do so by kind of drumming up more faith as if it's a work. Oh, I've got more faith, therefore I'm earning my righteousness. That's not what this is saying. We come with an empty hand and we recognize that it is poured out freely because we have fallen so far short of the glory of God. And by his grace, he freely gives us the righteousness of God. Jesus, I've sinned, haven't we all? Yeah, so we start on a level playing field. But how can I be made righteous in front of God? Just Jesus. His righteousness is available to all. Jesus justifies you, giving you a new standing before God. Jesus redeems you by paying the price which you and I should have paid for our own sin. Jesus is an atoning sacrifice, 
Not only does he take our sins as far as the east is from the west, but he deals with the wrath of God completely for those who believe. And Jesus gives this all graciously, freely, by faith. By us reaching out an empty hand saying, God, I've got nothing, but I believe that you can give me your righteousness. You can dress me in your righteousness and make me right in relationship with you. Why don't we stand up as we get ready to worship again? Because really, there's only a couple of ways we can respond to this. The first is by me asking, do you have faith? Do you recognize how far short your life has fallen that actually all have fallen short of the glory of God? And would you reach out an empty hand? Would you recognize that nothing you can do is going to add to your salvation? Nothing you can do is going to add to the work of Jesus on the cross. It is just Jesus. And the second thing is by submitting our lives again and recognizing and wondering who Jesus is and what he's done. Much of this series is going to lead us back to a point of worshipping. Sometimes we think that's not good enough. (laughs) Can I tell you that that is absolutely good enough? If all this morning has made you do is made you remember how amazing your salvation is, how amazing each of these things that I've gone through is, and it leads you back to a point of just wanting to praise and worship, that is good enough. That is bringing yourself back to magnify God and to glorify him and to give him your life again. So this morning, let's just take time now to worship him all the more and reach out those empty hands, acknowledging that it's just Jesus who has won all of this for us.